Sunday Morning Matinee is brought to you in partnership with The Christian Century, a magazine for progressive church leaders. Welcome to Sunday Morning Matinee, where we talk movies and pop culture with an eye for pastors, preachers, and Sunday school teachers. And today we are going to talk about music and legacy and Bill and Ted facing the music. My name is Matt. I'm the pastor at University Presbyterian Church in Austin, Texas. And I'm Adam, and I'm the minister of Overbrook Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. Right now, Matt, the heart, the epicenter of the political landscape in our country. Yeah, this is on an ordinary day. We are recording this as scheduled in our schedule on Friday, November 6th, but otherwise now known as the fourth day of election day, 2020, there are big things happening in the world. And still we're gonna sit here and talk about a stupid movie for a while because that feels like (laughs) the right thing to do. So in our first segment, Justification by Faith, we are gonna discuss how Bill and Ted Face the Music could help us think about life in the church and in the world. In our second segment, Preaching to the Choir, we're gonna discuss how Bill and Ted Face the Music might help us understand the lectionary passages for November 18th, the 24th Sunday after Pentecost. And in our third segment, Postludes, we'll take a second to share another little preacher thought from each of us on something else that we're reading or watching or following. So Adam, I'm gonna be totally honest, after three days of endlessly watching county maps and election pundits do their thing on cable news and Twitter, I was delighted to spend some time with something (laughs) as stupid as Bill and Ted face the music. I am profoundly thankful in 2020 for the gift of this very mediocre movie. Uh, It's a franchise now, I guess. The first of Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure released in 1989. I saw it in the theaters when I was 10. Introduced introduced the world to these two doofy teenagers who get to use a time-traveling phone booth to gather famous people from all over history in order to pass their final exam they have to do because in the future apparently they will write a song that unites humanity that sounds ridiculous if you've never seen it but here we are 30 odd years later with one sequel in between bill and ted are back keanu reeves and alex winter as middle-aged men still trying to write that one perfect song and when it turns out that they have to do it in about an hour and a half or else the universe ends they end up roaring through past and future and all cosmic places alongside alongside their teenage daughters in an attempt to pull together the music that will save everything. If anything, this movie is stranger than what I have just said. I would not call it well-written or well-directed or largely well-acted at all, but I loved it anyway. And I think it's got some great things for us to talk about as we make our turn toward theology in the world. What about you, Adam? How did Bill and Ted do at facing the music? Um, I I think like you, I had the same reaction, which is this is wonderfully stupid. And I I think if you like movies, but don't also appreciate that movies can be incredibly silly and and idiotic as an art form, and that there's a fair amount of cinema that's not cinema or film or whatever pretentious word we want to call it. It's just dumb entertainment. And um, I had in watching this movie realized how much anxiety I've been carrying through the past week. 
and how that anxiety manifested itself, not just in fear, but also in anger and also in sort of lack of patience. And then to watch Bill and Ted was to see something that is so wonderfully sincere and dopey that it broke through a lot of those emotions and, and had a way of sort of redistributing them back through my body in a way that I think was actually pretty helpful. So mm-hmm. I'm, I'm actually grateful for Bill and Ted Face the Music and it's um, the psychic benefits that it provided to me last night. As a movie, it is not good. It doesn't make a lot of sense. But <laughs> it does not make a lot of sense, Adam. It, it, but, it, but, you, but this is one of those movies where you, you can't think too hard about it. It's not asking you to think too hard about it. In fact, it's begging you not to. It's begging you to just be blessed by the sincerity of it all. And I think the thing that sort of got me last night was this very, I think, simple and to some extent cliche idea that music is super awesome and doesn't really care, doesn't really matter where the music comes from. It has this amazing ability to unite people and gather them and it can save families and marriages. And it's, it just seems to love music. And, and that for me was enough, right? I mean, you've got these two daughters who go back in time to try and like create the, the world's best band. And they, and they find different people throughout history in order to create this dance. And I was there for it the entire time. Meanwhile, there's this other plot of Bill and Ted and they're trying to sort of find the song in the future that they would have written in the past and in doing so are going through their own existential crisis by meeting their future selves and mix in a whole bunch of time travel that doesn't make any sense. And then a sort of a, a momentary sidetrack into hell and then back into saving the world. It was perfect. It was, it was incredible. And I think this is the theological point that's maybe most important for me, which is, um, that, that sometimes the foolish is really good for us, that, that we've had our fair share of malevolent fools in this world. And we see them in our, in, our, in our culture, in the highest forms of government, but we also see them in our churches. And from time to time, we are them. But I don't think that the, uh, the antidote to the malevolent fool is always the, the self-serious, um, thoughtful, um, person, but also maybe just a sincere and good-natured fool is needed. And I think it's needed in our churches because I'm, I'm super guilty of this. I, there are times when I look at the world and it just, it, it crashes on me so hard that I feel like we have to do something. And I'm just too guilty of being serious all the time. And, and everything has weight or consequence, but sometimes it's just okay to be trifling and stupid. And that's something that I need to tell myself a little bit more. And I think it's okay for the church to be a little trifling and stupid sometimes too. So, I mean, those are my initial thoughts. We can get into a lot of different places because this is about kids. This is about music. This is about partying on and how important it is to party on and be excellent. Uh, But what about you? I mean, what was your initial reaction as you watched this? I mean, I I think that that foolishness piece is is interesting and I, but I think it's adjacent to just a sense of joyfulness that I think the, the, the music provides to this film. So the, the, the conceit 
of this entire franchise and particularly this movie is that music itself has a force on us that it does things that it that it relaxes us that it brings us together that it is a force in and of itself for reconciliation uh which is broadly hugely on display in the climax of this film yeah uh, and, and i think that that music is not not uh, uh is sort of foolish i mean the movie kind of plays between the, the, the foolishness of it and the joyfulness of it are hand in hand. And, and I found that really profound that sometimes the, the, the antidote to darkness or destruction or um, this super apocalyptic vision that is coming at the end of this film or even like hell and death itself, the antidote, the escape from that isn't necessarily cleverness but it is certainly here joy and, and I, I think the characters of Bill and Ted resonate really really well with that I mean this is not uh, you know the, the the Sorkinian philosophy of like overcoming the evils of the world with with witty banter and intelligence this is something much more visceral that Bill and Ted are able to be a conduit for and I that was really powerful to me and you know one of the one of the stories I went to immediately I mean there I for you know you asked my initial thoughts I thought the first half of this movie kind of barely hung together I did not care <laughs> about watching Bill and Ted go through to the future and meet future versions of themselves that didn't work that well for me um I loved watching the daughters go back through time and collect musicians. Like yeah, that was clearly that that's that's where the heart of this franchise is, right? And so like that worked incredibly well. Well, and the one, comic relief of the robot and Beth showing up was really helpful for this movie. <laughs> and they show I, up in the last half of the movie. Yeah, and then I, I but then I also thought that like the last third, the kind of climactic sequence was actually sort of touching to me. I mean, the universe is ending. We are never entirely stipulated as to why, but it is sort of converging on this singularity of destruction um, that is just on a highway somewhere, but like because of things that are quantum that I don't understand, like various parts of universe and cosmos are all popping around everywhere. And, um, and, and what happens to counter that is music. And it is this this kind of defiant, joyful harmony that pushes back. There's I, I went immediately to the story of um, uh, Vedran Smilovich. Uh, do you know this story? Uh, the the um, this is the uh, a cellist who was living in Sarajevo in the '90s during the civil war there, and he's a, a very accomplished cellist and there was a, a bomb a, a, an explosion in his neighborhood that killed 22 people as a part of that war and it creates this huge crater in the street and Smilovich in the grief of that the next day I think it's the next day and maybe in days subsequent decides that what he's going to do is in the middle of this war-torn city, take his cello into the center of the crater and play. And he goes there and he plays for 22 days in a row 
as a witness to the people that died in that blast. Uh, and that image of like defiant cellist sitting in the middle of destruction, going to battle, not with words, but with music. Yeah. Felt really powerful and profound. Uh, and I, you know, and all the doofiness of it, it felt echoed in this movie too. Well, that's it. It has to, it, if you call it doofiness, but it's also, it's like utterly without guile. Right. You know, and and I I feel like the, the best music, the, the stuff that I care about, has at its heart a, a a sense that this stuff really matters. That it um that someone has an expression that they can't figure out how to do how to get out otherwise and the whole hope is that this expression will will change something that it will do something and it's like crazy thing to think yeah but, but at this um yeah. but that but that that moment of beauty and i actually quite found i found this like sometimes there are movies or or shows or different people who will try and make this make this this move and then the song stinks <laughs> right like you're like this song can't right. unite everybody, right. yeah, yeah. But I was like, hey, this song is pretty fun. I'm kind of into it. Yeah. Like, the song itself had a little bit of juice too, you know. And so it was, it was one of those moments of of just and it it got my imagination going too because I think what this movie does is um okay we just we just had All Saints right, and I think one of the imaginations that's so important for the life of the church and for so many is how can we gather all of these voices, especially the very special ones and the ones that we miss so dr dramatically and desperately in our lives into the same room that they might collaborate with us, each other. Like that's a huge and sincere hope, yeah. which is like the, the current moment always feels greater and bigger than whatever we have to meet it. Um, but in, in All Saints Day, one of the church's affirmation is that you, you don't you have more than what you have right now you have the history you have the saints you have the the great crowd of witnesses who are also harmonizing with whatever you're doing right now and i was you know i i love that image i love that like it's it's super cool to me that jimi hendrix and mozart are are like jamming with each other i don't know like that image itself feels to me very potent and, and Christian with respect to the, how we understand the ancestors and the ways in which they are also present in our lives in ways that maybe we don't immediately recognize, but ought to think more about. Yeah, I think that's beautiful. You know, it also sparked the kind of lament of the moment for me. It was a reminder of how much we have lost in worship by not being able to put our voices together in one room. Mm, yeah. So th this that it, I was having this kind of ecstatic moment at the end of this film of thinking through all of these theologies and the beauty of it, and then and then I kind of turned to man, I I, I miss being able to sing hymns together, and and this movie also reminded me of like how much more important that is than is regularly part of my kind of rational imagination. And so that it felt like a picture of something that is lost too. I mean, and it will come back, but it was particularly trenchant. Um, and 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 because that's the that's the the landline. That's the 
the thesis statement of the film at the very end, it, when, when they realize that they, they say, well, it was never the song. They've been the whole movie. They've been, we've got to write this song that is going to save everything, but it, it wasn't the song. It was that we sang it together. Right. Uh, and, and that, that hit yeah. close to home. Um, I, I agree. I like, I think the other thing that is operating in the background of this movie that sort of hit me is the, these, this father-daughter relationship. Now, yeah, sure. another one of us has daughters, but we, I think we, you and I have talked about this in the past, just the, the joy of passing on something that you love to your child and having them love it and having them, have, watching them experience it for the first time breathes new life into the thing that you love. It, it is a magical experience. And this movie does this amazing thing where it, Bill and Ted's kids are basically Bill and Ted, but women. And they have an insatiable love for all music that has been learned and passed down from their father, other fathers. And they go out to create a band that is like incredibly diverse and weird. But in the background is this idea that like, we get to pass on these things that we cherish to our kids. And then the, you know, the, the trick that's telegraphed a million miles away when you're watching this movie is that it's not Bill and Ted who are going to create the song. It's their kids. Right. And they're the ones who get to save the world, which is exactly right. Because if we're doing this right, like our kids should be better than us, that they should be better equipped to meet the needs of these, this world in the ways that we weren't. Um, that part of the, the, the great gift of being able to pass this stuff on is that they get to do it and, and, um, and get to reclaim this stuff and build on it in ways that we never could. Yeah, I uh, think that that's, stuff like, like that gets me. I just love that. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. And, and I think it, it was a helpful way for one franchise to go back and repit, revisit and in some ways unpack some of the kind of stories of white boys who grew up to save the world that white boys like you and me grew up watching all the time. Yeah, right. Yeah. And, and, and I, I, I like the facing the music of that that says, actually, you have a role here, sure, but it is not, you are not the sole protagonists of the saving of the universe. Like, right. Lord have mercy, there are plenty of young white boys in stories who have taught plenty of white boys like you and me that we were the sole protagonists of saving the universe and it is not thus and it was beautiful to be able to see that portrayed very simply here uh, i also just want to throw shout outs to the um that the actors who are playing bill and ted's daughters here uh who are just astoundingly good in those roles as samara weaving and bridget lundy Payne, uh who i just that's that's a hard piece of character yeah. to pick up and they're just just delightful yeah. in it and they go for it too yeah. i appreciate that right like i think they know the movie that they're in yeah yeah exactly and i think everyone does in this movie and that's the other um so i mean I have to say there's one one other detail that I would just point out that's very personal to me that I, I think is in, of a piece of what we're talking about here is that, um, uh, so Ted's dad in 
this movie uh, was is Hal Landon Jr. Uh, he was Ted's dad in the 89 film. And when eight, in 1989, when this came out, I knew Hal Landon as Scrooge, Ebenezer Scrooge, because he played um, Ebenezer Scrooge at South Coast Repertory's um, version of The Christmas Carol, a play that I went to every year and was one of the plays that sort of, I think, contributed to me to falling in love with a lot of theater and other things like that. And so it's, it's impossible for me to see Hal Landon in anything um, uh, and not immediately feel deeply nostalgic for the past. Um, and, and seeing him gives me like great joy in anything. He was also like uh, the, the father on 90210. So it, he is a, such a minor character in this movie. And yet it's one of those things in which the past and the memories that you have of the past and the, the nostalgia that you bring to something, um, it also, you know, most of the time I just, I'm, I get annoyed at nostalgia, but sometimes it feels really good. And it can be just a really lovely, warm feeling in the midst of a, a trying time. And so if being in the midst of, of coronavirus has taught me anything, it, that, that some of that nostalgia is really valuable, especially as it gets rerouted towards good whether it's in helping your, your kids refine this stuff and make new memories with this stuff or sort of rethinking about um, like who these people are, honoring them in your lives and, and remembering them as, as important, uh, important people. So here's, but I, here's the thing I wanna ask you though, because this is a, this is a stupid movie and, um, uh, and we'll move on to scripture and we'll talk a little bit more about the movie, but um, are there other stupid movies that you turn to when you want to feel some measure of joy? I feel like there are plenty of them. Uh, I mean, it, it depends on your threshold of stupid. I would say that like, I have a high threat. I have a high tolerance for stupid sports movies. No one oh, listening yeah. to this who knows me will be surprised by that. So like I, I my immediate thoughts oh, wow. go to like major league. Oh, what a great movie. <laughs> it's so good. Um, uh -huh. I, you know, an almost, I, I, and again, it depends on your definition of stupid. I mean, an almost endless tolerance for watching like old James Bond movies uh, just to relax. And those are, those can have moments of seriousness in them, but they're pretty campy. Um, certainly yeah. the Roger Moore era ones, which I think would definitely count as stupid. I mean, that kind of, that kind of stuff. What about you? Yeah. Um, well, there's a, there are a number. I, if Dumb and Dumber is sort of available, I always, I want, I've seen that movie 7 million times and it still makes me laugh. Um, and in, in many ways, the sort of Jim Carrey era was incredibly influential in my life, but then has passed, and except for that movie. That movie still gets me. Um, I love like bad action movies. Um, I love Battleship. <laughs> Battleship has a radical cast and it is, incredible and Liam Neeson and Rihanna and all these amazing people <laughs> fighting an alien that like lands in uh in Hawaii it's so good I love and then like any in, the bad bad movies with Will Smith or Tom Cruise are, are the best for me because I just like Oblivion you remember Oblivion that Tom Cruise movie yeah I and, never saw that one. Oh yeah it's so it's so ridiculous that's really good like I Robot. I'll totally watch iRobot. Um, 
And then, and then if if Da Vinci Code or Angels and Demons is on, I'm totally into the those Dan Brown remakes with uh, with with Tom Hanks and his bad haircut. Oh, those are amazing too. Yeah, and I symbologists. I, yeah, I can get I can get on board with some symbology. I mean, and I guess like I made us talk about National Treasure for like an hour and a half, and that's probably the pinnacle of my love for stupid movies. So right. I, I, I right. no apologies there. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I think it, you, you gotta make room in your life for some some stupid movies, some bad movies, and and any like any rock bad movie too is like like San Andreas or um, Skyscraper, totally into those as well. All right. Well, I think that means we should pivot to scripture. But before we do that, I want to say how grateful we are for our partnership with the Christian Century, and we want to guide your attention to the great work they are doing. Their new issue on clergy burnout is especially powerful and appropriate to where we are in this long year. We commend it to anyone in a church or anyone leading a church. If you are listening and don't yet subscribe to The Century, Sunday morning matinee listeners can get a free trial magazine subscription. For more information, visit christiancentury.org slash podcast offer. All right, Matt, let's talk about preaching. The texts for this upcoming lectionary are from year A, November 18th, deep into ordinary time. We have um, one of the few passages from the book of Judges about Deborah, uh, a prophecy from Zephaniah, uh, a real scorcher there, uh, some Pauline apocalypse and first Thessalonians. And then we have the parable of the talents from Jesus. As you think about Bill and Ted, based in music and the scripture passages for this week, what's sticking with you? I'm going anywhere near that Zephaniah text. Uh. <laughs> it's so wild. <laughs> uh, so, I mean, I'm thinking about the parable of the talents. I feel like this is a big piece of scripture and I, I imagine most folks will wrestle with it in some way, uh, though how you land the parable of the talents in sort of this post-election moment, I'm not quite sure. But I, I, I was thinking about it vocationally with reference to this film a little bit. It seems to me that it, I, I was sitting here asking myself, what is Bill and Ted's talent? I mean, we talk about this parable sometimes financially and sometimes in a sort of general what what it, the, the the time and treasure talent part of this what do you have to offer broadly to the kingdom and what did bill and ted have to offer this movie's a little bit of a bait and switch on the whole franchise actually right because uh, the conceit of this franchise from the beginning is that Bill and Ted are going to write this song that saves everything. Their talent is posited as being musical, that what they are supposed to do is be songwriters and performers. And they're gonna be so good at it that they're gonna bring the universe together. And that turns out not to be true. I mean, critically at the end of this film, they actually aren't particularly great at songwriting. And what we see in the fast forward sequences in the first half is like this constant reliance for them on trying to write the song, trying to write the song, trying to reclaim the glory that they had and write this song has actually put them into a pretty destructive spiral. But what's amazing is at the end, we discover their real talent, which isn't writing a song, but is gathering people together they have this sort of invitational effortless joy about them that we've already talked about, which is most manifest in this like ridiculous Ant-Man quantum sequence where they literally give instruments to everybody who has ever lived on the planet 
that sequence shows why future Bill and Ted have seemed so off because they've become self-interested. They've buried their talents inside themselves by not allowing themselves to follow what they are really good at. So it strikes me that like, we tend to read this parable as be sure to treat your talent well. Don't be the guy who buries it, be the people who invest it. But I think maybe there's a way of being all the characters in this story and needing to recognize that sometimes we have, sometimes uh, we are burying certain kinds of talents in ourselves and investing others. And sometimes we have it right and sometimes we have it backwards. Maybe one way That's of- right. Maybe one way of thinking yeah. about this story is like, what do we have in the tool in our toolbox that we use, and what do we have that we ignore? What are the stories that we tell ourselves about our vocations, and what's what what what's the truth? Uh, and so that's that's kind of what I'm playing with. I don't know how timely it is given the pandemonium of the world, but that's that's what this movie has done for my reading of this text. I love that. I actually I, that's a good sermon. I just I would I think it is it's kind of crazy and crazy in a way that's attractive to me to, to preach a sermon about Bill and Ted face the music. But sure. I, I think you're right, which is like, there is a there is finally a courage that Bill and Ted have to exhibit to recognize that their daughters are the ones. Right. And they're not the ones who are gonna write the song. And I'm, I love that they're like, fantastic, let's do it. What, well, then what do we do? Right. Um, and we and we do what we have been doing this entire franchise, right? Which yeah, is to yeah, yeah, which is to yeah. gather people. They gathered Napoleon and like and Beethoven and Socrates and, and Socrates. Uh, oh, right, you like they do it. And Billy the Kid, <laughs> like they've been gathering people this whole time. That's what they do. Genghis Khan doesn't Genghis Khan. <laughs> right, right, right. Um, yeah, that's and 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 that gathering is 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 a festal quality right like it is a party on yeah and 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 they are excellent to each other and to other people and i love that about them um so i i would think in something similar with that passage though too because that passage is so difficult because you can you're really forced to read it uh, one of two ways and i think both have merit um which is either the landowner is good and has been generous, or the landowner's a monster and extorting someone and and being cast in the outer darkness then is 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 a good thing that you have to sort of work that work out what it means. As you do like all of the scholarly research on this, like either goes very liberationist, which is like the capitalism inherent in this in this parable is bad. Right. Or um or that there's a, there's a specific type of generosity of the landowner here that's weird and unique that sets this landowner apart from any other landowner you would hope to meet in the ancient Near East. I, I think both of them are a question that sort of is, is asking us, like, how do we assess the good guys and the bad guys? And who do we listen to? And I like that everybody in this movie, at least from the perspective of, of Bill and Ted are good guys, even if they're bad guys. Like, and there's this like scene of reconciliation that they have to make with death and they befriend this robot that's killed everybody. 
And I mean, the very movie, the movie begins with them giving a toast to Ted's brother who has married his former stepmother, which is a bonkers way to begin the movie. But they are so incredibly sincere in it. And I, I just, I appreciate that too, which is that they seem to recognize that there is a, a, that there is good and value to the people who are in front of them. And, um, and so I think if you're trying to figure out how to assess like who is the landowner in, in, in the parable of the talents, is it God, is it somebody else? Um, I, I think that there's value in, in, in trying to sort of see the good in everybody in this, in this particular uh, parable. The, the thing that I also wanted to talk about is like that judges passage. So we don't get to look at judges very often. In fact, I'm, I'm, um, I'm preaching on Ruth this week, um, which famously begins with in the time of the judges, right? There's this sort of, um, and the, the, the time of the judges, I think is especially prevalent for our world right now, which is sure. um, my, my friend, Greg translates judges as warlords. <laughs> like, in the time of the warlords, this is the time when you have this like factionalism and tribalism and no one quite knows what authority they need to appeal to and how do you get led and who leads and how do you find leaders? All of these things are very important questions in the book of Judges and, and I think are still uh, uh, important questions in the wake of our election here. But I think a little bit to your point earlier, Matt, this, this passage where Deborah is the judge is especially interesting in part because while she's named the judge and while she gets to be the sort of commander of an army, she ultimately isn't the one like Ehud or like Samson or like Gideon who gets to slay the evil bad guy, right? Um, in fact, it's a Bedouin woman who, uh, who gets to sort of land the decisive blow here. And, and I think that little twist of narrative twist in this passage is, is helpful, especially as we think about Bill and Ted and, and they think about like, you've been called, you've been chosen, you've been, you're the one who's supposed to, um, to change everything and how that can twist us up. And I think about that like in, in ministry too, where you feel like, okay, I have to do something. Like, I really have to, I have to make a difference. And how am I gonna know that something's gonna make a difference? And you, you can bang your head against the wall trying to figure out how you are going to leave some legacy. Um, when maybe the legacy is going to be left by a lot of other people who you empowered. And are you gonna be okay with that, right? That the legacy ultimately that Bill and Ted are leaving is that they introduced their daughters to music and their daughters were able to write the song that saved existence. And I think similarly with, with Deborah, like this is someone who gets remembered even though she wasn't the one who sort of struck the decisive blow that ultimately killed Jael. So I, that's something I'm just kind of noodling on as, as I think about those particular passages. I, I will say like, you know, we can find these conversations to the lectionary passages that are ahead of us for this Sunday. But if we instead asked like, what scriptural passages does this movie spark for you? It, that list would I think also be pretty long and, and, right. and, and, and potentially interesting and fruitful. I mean, if you were thinking about 
the the language of the psalms of all of creation uh joining together and singing glory to god or praising to god and if you think about the various kinds of cosmic vision and revelation of the creatures coming together in worship uh you yeah. think about the um Paul and Silas and Acts singing hymns in the jailhouse and then the walls collapse and they are freed. There's a, a lot of places in scripture where worship and music in their in joined hands together uh, have this kind of giant cosmic scope to them that I think yeah. um, th this movie is clearly uh, intersecting with. Uh, that, yeah, we, that, went out, we, we went out sewing, weeping, right? I mean, yeah. and and came home carrying highs the sheets, yeah. um, uh, singing praises to God. I mean, I think that, yeah, that, that theme can be really potent with this, with the, the combination of this movie. All right, it is time for our last segment. This one is called Postludes. It's just one more chance to get another little preacher thought from each of us on something else that we're watching or following. So Adam, what's your posted for the week? So, I mean, I, I, in watching Bill and Ted face the music, I, I felt like I had to have some sort of musical postlude. And, uh, and what I want to talk about is uh, the, the billing catalog that continues to come out. Um, and in particular, these new, uh, this new album that just came out not too long ago, where it's the album Blood on the Tracks, but it's all of the alternative takes that were recorded and not used for Blood on the Tracks. Now, Blood on the Tracks is a really important album for me. It's, um, it has been, it has shown up in very important transitional periods. And it's a, it's an album, it's one of the albums that I know every word to. And, um, and I, I deeply love that album. And I have a, I have a complicated and, and longstanding relationship with it. And so it's lovely to also then go back to it and find the small differences in these takes as, as Dylan himself is working out how to sing these songs and how to play them. And the changes are very slight. They're, they're, they're not huge. They're changes in tempo. You might get a, a spare verse here or there that you don't know, which in, in listening to a song you've listened to a hundred times is actually quite delightful to like hear a new verse where you're like, Oh, I don't know these, these words. Um, and and it's just got me thinking just about the sort of um, the, the ways in which our deep familiarity with something can, um, can be disrupted in a really beautiful way by, um, by new versions, new, new iterations, and how it's because you love something and know it so fully that those disruptions feel so beautiful um, because you, they are, there are new facets in things that you thought you knew so totally. And, and they don't really make sense. If you, if, if you listen to Blood on the Tracks once and then listen to these outtakes as an album, I don't think you would notice much of the difference, but it's only in this sort of deep familiarity with something that you can see some stark or like some small minute difference and be able to just marvel in it for just a moment. And so I, I would encourage anyone if there's something that they love um, I, that to not just return to it, but if there is an alternative version or something else um, or different iterations of it to, to read them or watch them or, or listen to them side by side as an exercise and 
in in attention and paying attention to, to beautiful things in our lives. So that's my post loop. What about you, Matt? Yeah, there's been not just Dylan. There's been some interesting like archival drops. I mean, the Tom Petty just released the the Tom Petty's estate just released the basically four album long 25th anniversary version of Wildflowers that has all of these archival recordings in it, including like a whole disc's worth of songs that didn't make the cut that are just absurdly good in their own right. Yeah. Uh, and then um, and then Joni Mitchell has just released volume one of the Joni Mitchell archives, which has 119 tracks on it. Whoa, <laughs> I gotta check it out. And so like, I don't know yeah. how many volumes are planned, but we're just getting these massive dumps of, of like, and those are both artists whose work I know really, really well. So I'm having some of that same that same reaction. But I want to talk about a, a musician that uh, I have just learned about. It's a group a group called the Binksons. Is this name mean anything to you? Nope. Uh, so the, the Binksons are basically an indie folk duo. They're a married couple. They're armed with a few bare instruments and then a lot of looping. Uh, and it, stylistically, it's it's fine, but I'm totally in love with the lyricism that I'm hearing in their songs. They, they've released an album this year uh, called the Keep Going On Song, um, which was recorded and released uh, in pandemic. And the title track of that has gotten a little bit of play and I, I would certainly invite you all to, to go and track it down. But I wanted to play just a little bit of a track called Joy and Grief, which is a song that I think has hymnody in it. And I'm I'm kind of obsessed with it right now. I wanted to acknowledge that there isn't a lot of space for grief around here. But I wanted to let you know. So you hear this very simple um, musical style to it, but the lyrics just knock me out. I wanted to acknowledge, she sings, that there isn't a lot of space for grief around here, but I wanted to let you know that for me, when I let the breaking into my voice and into my work, and into my heart, when I let my grief take up all the space of a thousand oceans that were washing over me every day, I have to say, I felt joy. And there's something in the, the way she conveys that and it, the way she sings, which almost feels like she is spontaneously writing this as she goes through the song that I am finding just incredibly trenchant uh, in this particular moment. So I send that gift of a song to you all and um, I, that, that gift of a, of a hymn in its own way um, in, into y'all's liturgy and into your lives. That's awesome. Thanks for sharing that, Matt. Uh, I look forward to listening to it regularly going forward. So that about wraps it up for this episode. If you like the show, be sure to leave a rating on iTunes or come to the show page to discuss what we got right, what we got wrong. We'd love to hear your feedback. Drop us a line on Facebook or Twitter or at the show page at Sunday Morning Matinee. Special thanks, of course, to our friends at the Christian Century and to fine editing skills of Derek Weston. Our music today was composed by Bobby Brinkerhoff. Big thanks to him and his band, Dennis Caleb McCoy. <laughs> thanks, Matt. Thanks, Matt.